All right, well, we are going to start back here with another uh, session on God's providence in salvation. And we've been obviously walking through uh, the five points of the tulip. And uh, we've been lingering on what is certainly the most challenging of the five to believe. Uh, it can often be said that uh, most people you meet are a one-point Calvinist, right? M most people, uh, well, that's a little off-center. Most people uh, agree with perseverance of the saints uh, here. M most people accept that one. Uh, it is obviously uh, what is meant by the first four that is much more up for debate. And of all of them, there is no question that the L, the limited atonement, is the most uh, controversial of the five. I think uh, it's not uncommon to hear people describe themselves as four-point Calvinists. Uh, Dr. Bruce Ware, uh, who uh, is a Southern Baptist Reformed uh, evangelical professor, influential, uh, and in many ways a, a wonderful man of God and a great theologian, but on this issue he calls himself a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist or something like that, and he believes in um, the multiple intentions view of the cross. Where he, it's a little bit, I don't, I don't want to sound snarky at the beginning here, but it's a little bit of having your cake and eating it too. Uh, he wants to take the best of the Calvinist limited atonement, and he wants to take also what uh, general atonement or more the Arminian notion of unlimited atonement. He wants to sort of bring them both together and believe both. So he would say that Jesus died for for all in a true sense, in the sense that he atoned for all people's sins. He propitiated all people's sins. He would take 1 John 2, 2 as referring to propitiation for every single person's sins in the whole world in the way that more of an Arminian or unlimited atonement individual would take it. But then he also wants to say, but Jesus only secured the salvation of regeneration and faith and repentance. He only secured the salvation for the elect only. And so it's a little bit of a, of a, of a trying to have uh, the, the best part of, of both worlds there. I, I don't think it works. And, and I'll just tell you honestly, the L is the one that's the hardest one to, to come to terms with. I mean, you can ask at our church, you can ask Jerry Edgar about this, you can ask me about this. I, we feel this way. I think Greg would agree with that as well. That, 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 and Scott, I think as well. That this is, this is the, the most challenging of the five. Um, and and I, listen, I want to be truly humble and gracious about this point. I, I want to have my heart submitted to God's word. I want to go where God's word goes on this. If John 3.16 teaches unlimited atonement, I want to believe unlimited atonement. I'm just not convinced John 3.16 teaches that, and, and these other verses as well. And here, here's what I'll tell you. I, I never held quite to Bruce Ware's view of a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist, but I would say my way of articulating the L, the, the infamous L, for, for many years was, I think, a little bit of a halfway house between the two sides. I'll just, just, a, just an inch that way. And I think that as I've studied it more in recent days, uh, I think I've become more persuaded of the more traditional Canons of Dort Calvinist perspective on limited atonement. So I, I'm telling you sincerely, I, I really am seeing that even the so-called universal texts are not perhaps teaching what sometimes people uh, take them to mean. So just remember here, as we, uh, as we talk about this, that um, there is a harmony or a unity um, uh, in the Trinity with you have Father, Son, and Spirit. These may not line up on there as well. But it's a little off on how my screen is, but you have Father, Son, and Spirit, and in election, the Father does not elect all. He elects some, the sheep. The Spirit does not regenerate all. He, reject, he regenerates the sheep, God's elect. 
Jesus does not atone as in uh, secure the removal of God's wrath for all, without exception, uh, but for the sheep in particular. And I do think that, this is where I don't don't want to be a logic chopper where I'm simply using human logic beyond the text of Scripture. That's a danger. It's a danger, by the way, for Arminians and Calvinists, sincerely. Uh, Arminians, I I, I want to say this humbly, in my experience, Arminians bring a couple of massive assumptions or even presumptions into the discussion, and they read them into texts that I don't think are being taught in texts. And Calvinists can do the same thing, right? At least in theory. So, so here's how I think Arminians can do this. Arminians very frequently, and I love these people. Oh my goodness. I mean, so many of the Christians I know and love uh, locally and in my Bible college where almost everyone was an Arminian, I know and love so many. Uh, maybe the majority of Christians that I know are Arminians. I don't, I don't know for sure, but that's probably true. And I, I love them and they love the Lord. And I'm not saying any sort of horrible, disparaging thing. I just want to be as biblical as I can. And I hope they do as well. But I, I see that Arminians have a tendency to read into text things that are not there. Um, so j- just, I don't even know if I have the slide here with me. Let me see if I can find it. When, when you look at a, a verse like John 3.16, all right, which we haven't even discussed in Sunday school yet. Here's what, here's what I tend to see happens. For you, have, for you have God so loved the world, right, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. So not perish, but have eternal life. So what, what tends to happen here is Arminians will read into a verse like this, libertarian free will. And remember, libertarian free will, which is a formal title for a certain view of human choice and volition, it's, by the way, the majority view in our culture today by a long shot. I don't think the Bible teaches libertarian free will, but people will look at this, and Arminian will read in his notion or her notion of of, of libertarian free will into this verse, and they'll say, look, the, the text says, I mean, you really can't be any clearer than this, it says, whoever believes. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And the assumption is this. This verse is teaching that everyone has the moral ability to believe. That that God gives enough provision through His provenient grace to where, yes, left to ourselves, we're locked in sin, but God gives us provenient grace to bring us to a place of moral neutrality where we could really go one way or another. Ultimately, we are self-determining and we could go this way or that way. God does not call that shot. Otherwise, we'd be robots or puppets on the string, not making real decisions, they would say, for which we would be accountable, not able to produce real love, they would argue. So God gives us provisionary or provenient grace, puts us in a place of moral neutrality, and then we tip the scales towards righteousness or away. And the assumption is that this verse teaches that, because it says, whoever, right? So, so the argument is, when, whenever you have a a whoever, a whosoever, uh, the argument is that means everyone has the moral ability by God's provenient grace to tip the scales towards belief or away from belief. But I want to say humbly, this verse does not say that. That view is read into phrases like whoever believes. Or the King James of Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, whosoever will, come, right? 
Now, phrases like whoever believes or whosoever will may come. People will read into that. Therefore, that verse is teaching that every single individual without exception is given the moral ability to be put in a place of neutrality where God pushes you by provenient grace to that spot where you can tip the scales one way or the other and you make the decisive decision. And they would say, otherwise, we're robots. Otherwise, these verses don't actually make sense. But I'm telling you, no, these texts are not teaching that. They are not teaching that. Uh, this verse is teaching what is true. This verse is teaching that God loves the, this evil, big, bad, wicked world. It's not just the Jewish world that he loves. He loves the Gentile world. Remember, this is coming at the end of a conversation with Nicodemus, a Jewish teacher, the teacher of Israel. So a very Jewish-centered person. And Jesus is teaching them, hey, the gospel is more than just about Israel. It's more than just about Jews. It's more than just about Jerusalem. It's for the world. God loves the pagan world, the Gentile world. God loves this big, bad, wicked world in such a way that he gave his only son, his only begotten son. He gave his son. Now, now let's just look at the logic here, okay? The, the word so, right here, the word, word, word so. This does not mean so much, okay? Very often people take it as so much. I don't even know if I can write on this thing. That's pretty ugly. Uh, it, do, it does not mean so much. Let me turn this pin on. It does not mean so much. So here means in Greek, in this way. God loved the world so. God loved the world in this way. It's kind of like if you're teaching someone how to hold a baseball bat. I'm left-handed here, or at least with baseball bat. You, you say, hold the bat like so. It doesn't mean so much. It means like so means in this way, in like manner, in this way. And so that's, how, that's what the word means. You can look it up. I think it's the word hutas in the Greek. It means in this way. So it doesn't mean so much. That's the common way people think about it. No, it means in this way. So God loved the world in this way. Okay, so God loved this big, bad, evil, dark world in this way. What did he do? He gave his only son, which is unimaginable. What? I know that's ugly. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Do you see what John 3.16 is teaching? God loved this evil world in such a way that he gave his son so that all believers would be saved. Whoever believes would be saved. This verse actually teaches particular redemption. Even, may I say it, limited atonement. I know some people right now listening are going to think you're out of, I'm, out of, I'm out of my mind. But look, God loved the world in this way. He gave his son... What's the purpose, okay? What's the purpose? That, here, here's, the well, here's the goal. God, God loved the world in this way. He gave his son with the purpose that whoever believes, all who believe, every single believer would not perish but have eternal life. That is not teaching universal atonement. That is teaching particular redemption. God sent his son into the world and he loved the world in, in the way that, that everyone who believes would not perish. God's intention in sending the Son was to save all believers, which is the same group as the elect, okay? So, so we need to be careful of what we're reading into some of these texts. And going back to the Calvinists, I don't want to be guilty of reading things into the text either. So the, the question here would be, are we reading limited atonement into the text of Scripture, okay? Th this is by far the most difficult uh, point of the five. Are we reading this into the text of Scripture? I do not want to be guilty of doing so. Let's remind ourselves of Kevin DeYoung here. The doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption 
or even definite atonement. Uh, and I, I like what Greg mentioned. Uh, uh, Dr. Lethem, a systematician, described it as, um, may, maybe you heard this yesterday, effective atonement. I think that's a great title for, for limited atonement, effective atonement, an atonement that actually produces the intended result of atonement. It's not just theoretical atonement. It is actual. It is effective. Uh, it is effectual atonement. I think it's a great title. So this doctrine is not just about the extent of the atonement. It's not just about the extent of the atonement. It's also about the nature of the atonement. Did God, did the Son of God die to make salvation merely possible or to make people saved? That, that's the question. So this is so important. We're not simply debating the extent of the atonement. We're debating what, the actu what does it actually mean that Jesus died as an atonement for sin? Because if he died for all without exception in the same way, it redefines the nature of what atonement means. It redefines the nature of what atonement means. And I'll just take you to, if I have it here, let me take you to a verse. Look at this. This is probably uh, the single strongest um, unlimited atonement verse in the Bible, maybe. Uh, 2 Peter 2.1 is probably right up there with it. Let's, let's look at this. Does, does this text teach unlimited atonement? It certainly looks like it. Let's take a few minutes here. <clears throat> My little children, I'm writing things, these things to you. So most people think... Um, John is writing to Ephesian Christians or churches in, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, modern Turkey area. It's hard to know that for certain, but it's certainly a good, it's a good guess, I think. My little children, John's 90 when he writes this, so I think everyone is a little child compared to John. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So his goal is that you may not sin. That's what he wants. But he knows we're not perfect. But if anyone does sin, so let's think about this for a second. John is writing to deal with Christians who may be discouraged because, listen, we don't think the gospel is an excuse to sin. We don't think the gospel is a ticket to sin. But in reality, are Christians going to sin? Tragically, wickedly, yes, it is certainly true. In our thought, word, deeds, our motives, we are going to fall short, and we are even at times going to deliberately, willfully sin. And listen, willful sinning without repentance, my goodness, 1 John will make it very clear. Those who practice unrighteousness are of the, are of the evil one. Uh, they are like Cain. They don't know the Lord. So unrepentant, deliberate, willful sinning is a sign we're not even a Christian at a certain point. But he knows there's going to be moments of real willful sin. So <laughs> let's keep the context in mind of who he's writing to. If anyone does sin... He wants to encourage Christians who have recently perhaps sinned. If anyone does sin, we have, and this is where things uh, really get good. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. So you see here, these two roles Jesus has go together. We talked about this in Sunday school yesterday. I think this is extraordinarily significant. Jesus is being spoken of in priestly terminology right here. You say, how do you know that's priestly terminology? 
Well, because this is where we get the word paraclete, parakletos, or whatever the word is here. Uh, counselor, encourager, advocate, comforter, those kinds of words are translated from paraclete or parakletos. So Jesus is our paraclete. Uh, he is our, he's our advocate. Think of our, our, our lawyer representing us in court with the Father. So Jesus right now is doing a priestly role for believers. This is, this is mind-boggling stuff for the Christian. Because the context of advocate and propitiation for sins is in the context of Christians who are struggling with sin in the here and now. Not an excuse to sin. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. John does not want you to sin. And he will say unrepentant sin shows you're not even a Christian throughout the letter of 1 John. That's crystal clear. But he knows we're not perfect yet. Christians are going to stumble. And so in the context of Christian sinning, we've got good news. For the repentant believer who's a true believer, who does not want to live in their sin, who's humble, coming back to the Lord for grace. We've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. So if you look at this, Jesus Christ is the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I mean, th this is just huge, huge encouragement for the believer. This is unbelievable stuff. So if you have recently chosen deliberately to sin in some area, that is dishonoring to the Lord, it is hurtful to you spiritually. It's going to injure people spiritually around you as they're impacted by your sin. But, but know this, Christian, God does not want you to sin, but if you've sinned, there's good news. If you will repent, if you're repentant, you've got an advocate. You've got a parakletos. You've got a paraclete. You've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So listen, He's not shady. He's not doing backroom deals that are unjust. No, Jesus is pleading your case in heaven as your advocate, as your lawyer, as your attorney, as your, as your counselor. He's, he's pleading your case in heaven right now with the Father. And by the way, the Father is in agreement with the Son entirely. There's no, don't think that the Father and Son are in disagreement about you. No, they are in agreement. The Father has sent the Son to do the work of a priest. The Father is blessing and loving the Son as the Son is advocating for you. It was the Father's plan to choose you. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was the Father's plan to send the Son. God so loved the world. He sent the Son. God sent the Son. God, or, God, God appointed the Son for advocacy. The Son is overjoyed to obey his father. He only does what he sees his father doing. He, he always does what the father uh, would have him do. And so this advocacy is, is in complete agreement between all members of the Trinity. There's no fighting here between the Trinity. There's no disunity between the Trinity. They have one will. They are one essence. They are one God. So three persons, Jesus is, is your advocate before the father and his advocacy is righteous. How can a righteous advocate plead the case of sinners, or at least those who struggle with sin as believers. You, you sinned. If anyone does sin, if you, you've sinned, perhaps. So how in the world can Christ righteously be your advocate with the Father? And the answer is, he can intercede for you. He can advocate for you. He could be your parakletos for you in heaven. He could be your defense attorney in heaven before the Father in righteousness because of verse 2, Right? Here's the ground. He's the propitiation for our sins. So how can Jesus be a righteous advocate for those who have sinned greatly, horrifically? All sin is great and horrific. Willful sin is despicable. How in the world can Christ be righteous and your advocate? The answer is, he's made propitiation. 
the Greek word I think is halasmos or something along those lines, to make propitiation. This is a precious, precious word in the Bible. This means Jesus satisfied and removed the wrath of God. When Jesus said, talks about the cup on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath dry, leaving not a drop, which means God's wrath for all of God's true people, all of God's elect, has been taken away. God's wrath has been satisfied. The punishment has been fully poured out, meted out in righteousness on the Son. He is born in infinite punishment on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stood in the place of sinners, of his, of his elect people, and he propitiated, he removed the, the wrath of God for all of your sins. He's the propitiation for our sins. So how can someone who has recently sinned have an advocate with the holy God who is righteously pleading our case if we've sinned? The answer is he pleads his own blood. He pleads propitiation for our sins. He says, Father, don't let that ransom sinner die, right? We were seeing uh, the, the song, Mary Beth posted it in the group, me. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. Thy bleeding sacrifice on thy behalf appears. Forgive him, oh, forgive, he cries. Don't let that ransom sinner die. And then it goes, arise, arise, my soul, arise. So this is tremendous encouragement. Now, if you're getting the context here, if you also look back uh, at the rest of 1 John 1 and, and, the, and 1 John in general, there's, there's an early form of kind of an incipient Gnosticism that's showing up, which basically means some people believe that they had never sinned before because they separated their body from their spirit, and they could think their body could sin, but their spirit remains untouched by sin, so they might have thought of perfectionism and these kinds of false teachings Paul, uh, John is, I think, beginning to address in this letter. So that's in the background there, a kind of a sinless perfectionism that John says, no, if you say you have no sin or that you've never sinned, you don't know, you call God a liar, you don't know God. So you've got to know that you've sinned. And then here's what we do with our sin. We, we don't want to sin. When we do sin, we repent, we, we plead with Christ. He pleads with the Father in righteousness because he took away our sin. But the verse doesn't end here. The verse seems to support unlimited atonement very clearly. I mean, sincerely, when you read this verse, it definitely sounds like limited atonement is wrong. Look at the end of the verse. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. So let's look at this. Not, not, let me turn this back on. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, people would say, I mean, don't even try to make this mean anything other than what it says. It doesn't say the sins of the elect or the sins of God's people. No, in fact, this is what, uh, one commentator um, who takes the multiple intentions view says, look, this verse clearly says he's the propitiation for our sins. Our here must mean believers because John's a believer writing to other believers. So he's the propitiation for our sins as believers and not for ours only as believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is unbelievers and the unelect. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. Now listen, I am not trying to do logic chopping, as it's called, where you just cut out what's in the Bible and trumpet with your logic and your system of theology. I'm, 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 I'm sincere right now. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to do that, really. Uh, I, I am more than happy to follow the Bible where it goes. Could I be wrong? Well, the answer is, who presents the most compelling argument, I think is a good way to ask. I mean, theoretically, all kinds of people could be wrong about all kinds of things. I don't really like the question, could you be wrong? Because theoretically, you could be wrong about all kinds of stuff. The question is, 
who's more likely wrong and who has the better arguments. That, that those are better ways to look at it, okay? Because not everyone's as likely to be wrong. And some people have very strong arguments in support of what they say. I do not want to be a Calvinist logic chopper who just cuts out what the clear meaning of the text is to support my systematic theology that I've sort of invented, this sort of man-made Calvinistic system. Nothing in me wants to do that. Sincerely, nothing in me wants to do that. So it, it, does this text have to mean what, it, what, it, what a lot of people think it means, what it even seems to mean upon a first reading? <clears throat> and I, I want to start by saying this. Let's just take the word propitiation here. Okay, propitiation. That means to satisfy God's wrath and to remove it. To secure the removal of God's wrath for the individual for whom propitiation is made. If this verse means Jesus is the propitiation, the wrath remover, the sin bearer and wrath remover for Christian sins, our sins, and not for ours, the elect or Christians only, but also for the sins of the whole world, meaning uh, the unelect too. If that's what this verse really means, then here's the crazy thing that happens. You're actually, all of a sudden, you know what you're doing? Suddenly you're redefining what you mean by the word propitiation. Okay? Suddenly you're, you're now, you're, you're redefining this term. Because suddenly halasmos or whatever the Greek word is, the word for propitiate, to remove God's wrath, suddenly it doesn't actually mean to remove God's wrath. Do you, do you see here how it changes the meaning of the actual nature of the atonement? This is what we're arguing. We're arguing that both sides limit the atonement. Both sides in this debate limit the atonement. That, that's, that's the argument, okay? Let me remind you of the John Frame quote, who's a great uh, systematic theologian. This is from his systematic theology. Those who say the atonement has uh, an unlimited extent, and again, I want to say it graciously, this is the view of the majority of American Christians. It's the Arminian view. Unlimited extent of the atonement, it's what almost everybody just thinks John 3.16 and 1 John 2.2 obviously teach, these universal texts. Unlimited atonement, okay. <clears throat> Those who say the atonement has unlimited extent believe that it has limited efficacy. Now, why would we say that? Do you see how if you define the word atonement or propitiation, if you define the word atonement or propitiation, if you define it in a way that doesn't actually guarantee that God's wrath is removed from the individual who is atoned for? Do you see how you're actually changing what this word means and you're making it limited in its efficacy? But you see, you're actually changing what you mean by the word atone or propitiate. Right? I don't know if I have this verse in front of me. I don't think I do. Uh, in John 1... John the Baptist says what? He says, yeah, I don't have it with me. In, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, you know the verse? What? The sin of the world. Now, if the world there means every single individual who's ever lived without exception, do you see how that actually changes what you mean by takes away the sin? Follow me here. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
If you believe in unlimited atonement, if you believe in unlimited extent to atonement, to taking away sin, you have to see that you've now redefined take away the sin to not really necessarily take away the sin. You've actually now put a limit on the efficacy, the effectiveness of the atonement. The nature of the atonement is now changing because think about this. If Jesus died and he, the Lamb of God took away, he takes away the sin of the world. If, if the world means every single individual on earth, including all the non-elect, then take away doesn't actually mean take away. Because we know that Judas died an unbeliever. He's in torment right now, awaiting resurrection to judgment and the lake of fire. Judas and Goliath and Jezebel and many, many others who died as unbelievers in the Bible. These individuals, you're telling me Jesus, the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. So Jesus took away Judas's sins, Goliath's sins, Jezebel's sins, and uh, you know, whoever else died as an unbeliever. He took away all their sins, Pharaoh's sins. In what way are those sins taken away if those individuals right now are paying for those very sins in judgment right now? There's a debate about whether people are in hell right now or in Hades. I prefer the view that they're in Hades, which is a place of torment and fire in Luke 16, but it, it awaits the final judgment where Hades, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire after final judgment, which is hell. So my, my view would be that Hades is a place of torment awaiting the final place of the, of the damned, which is which is hell itself. So wherever you want to say they are, they're in a place of torment right now. How were their sins taken away if they are right now paying for those sins? And my, my guess, I want to be fair, my guess is that the Arminian would say, Jesus took them away in the sense that had Goliath believed in Jesus, his sins would have been taken away. Had Jezebel repented and believed truly, her sins would have been taken away, right? Had uh, Judas actually repented truly like Peter did after his denial, his sins would have been taken away. And I want to say amen to that. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 100% agree. If they would have repented and believed, their sins would have been taken away. But they didn't repent and believe. They were not elect individuals, it turns out, because they died unbelievers. So therefore, they were clearly not chosen for salvation. And therefore, in what sense were they atoned for? In what sense was God's wrath propitiated against those individuals who are now paying for that very wrath and those sins in hell or in Hades at this moment. That's an atonement that does not actually atone. It's a propitiation that doesn't actually propitiate. It's a taking away of sin that doesn't actually take away sin because they're paying for sin. It's actually a form of double jeopardy. God punishes Jesus for Goliath's sin but then Goliath is not elect and does not repent and believe. He dies in unbelief. And therefore now God is punishing Goliath for Goliath's sins. So in what sense did Jesus propitiate Goliath's sins? In what sense did he atone for Goliath's sins? In what sense did he take away Goliath's sins? Well, I think we could all agree. It, it, you could say, had Goliath repented and believed, his sins would have been taken away. But he didn't, and therefore they weren't. And so what I'm saying is, if you argue for unlimited extent, you change what the word atonement really is meaning. Because suddenly people are atoned for who end up in hell. People are propitiated who end up in hell. The Lamb of God took away their sins for the whole world, yet they're now in, these individuals, are, some of them are now in hell, and the sins are clearly not taken away. They're present. So, so what, what I want to say is, it sounds generous and wide and loving to believe in an unlimited atonement, 
and to take the so-called universal texts like Jesus was a ransom for all or propitiation for the whole world, these whole world and all texts, if we take them in the unlimited sense where he died for every individual without extinction, it sounds loving and broad and wide and it seems to be the right thing to do to a lot of people's instincts. But what I'm arguing is uh, it actually uh, accidentally, I think unbeknownst to people, it ends up changing what we mean by the word atonement itself. It ends up becoming a, a, an atonement that can't guarantee atonement. It's a propitiation that doesn't actually guarantee propitiation. It's a removing of sins, a taking away of sins by the Lamb of God that may not actually end up with your sins being taken away. So what sounds like a broad, loving, inclusive form of God's love, unlimited atonement, Jesus died for all in the same way, ends up changing what we mean by atonement and ends up limiting the effectiveness or efficacy of the atonement. Do you see? So let's keep going. Those who say that the atonement has an unlimited extent believe that it has a limited efficacy, a limited power to save, to save, a limited power to save. Now, those who believe the atonement is limited to the elect, now this is what I'm arguing for, however, believe what? That it is, that it has unlimited efficacy, okay? So, Although limited atonement has the bad name of being limited, it sounds narrow. People are automatically suspicious of that. Like, are you talking about like you believe in a limited cross? Like Jesus' work on the cross was very limited in scope? Well, here, here's what I want to ask you if you're on, on the Arminian side. I mean, we all agree, don't we? That Jesus said the way is broad and wide and easy that leads to destruction and many enter by it. The way is narrow and hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. No matter what, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist or something else, you've got to believe at the end of the day, the majority of people on earth are going to perish in their sins and pay for their sins eternally. Even if they were offered the gospel, many reject it. And so no matter how we look at it, at the end of the day, the majority of people are not effectively atoned for by the cross, but are paying for their sins themselves. But here, with limited atonement, we actually believe that the cross is effective. It's unlimited in its efficacy. See, so everyone limits the atonement. If you're an Arminian or wh wh whatever you want to call yourself, you might believe in unlimited extent, but you believe in limited effect. Jesus can die for you, but it doesn't guarantee you will be saved. He can atone for you. It doesn't guarantee you're atoned for. But in limited atonement, every single person that Jesus dies with the intent, with the intent of saving, will be saved. He is unlimited in his, in, his in his efficacy. He will save all those for whom he specifically and particularly died to save. So everyone limits it. Spurgeon said, you know, the, the Arminian has a bridge that goes halfway across the water, but doesn't actually get you all the way there. Doesn't get you all the way. There. You've got to add the free will faith to make that bridge work. Whereas the, the Calvinist believes that the, the, the bridge for the Calvinist is not as wide as for the Arminian, but the bridge goes all the way across the stream because the atonement provides the gift of regeneration, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, the gift of faith and repentance is purchased by the blood of Christ and therefore it completes the whole bridge so that it may not be as wide as the Arminian, but at least it goes all the way across the stream. That's the argument. So everyone limits it. Either you limit how far across the stream the bridge goes. Is it, does it go 90% and you have to add your faith to make the bridge effective to go all the way across? Or does it go all the way across, but it's not as wide or universal in its effectiveness, in its, in its intent? A great line here from, uh, from Dr. Frame. So everyone believes in some kind of limitation. 
Either the atonement is limited in its extent or it's limited in its efficacy. I think the Bible teaches that it is limited in its extent and unlimited in its efficacy. All right, so let's return back here to our verse. Okay, so let's go back to this. <clears throat> so we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, let's go back to what we were saying. If our sins refers to believers and the sins of the whole world, uh, the whole world here, refer to, uh, to, refer to uh, all the world, unbelievers uh, and unelect included, do you see what happens? You see what happens? We just change the definition of propitiation. We, we just ch change the definition of propitiation because now if this means it's a propitiation that doesn't actually guarantee the salvation of the whole world. It's a propitiation that doesn't actually necessarily propitiate. It's a removal of God's wrath that may leave God's wrath for all the unelect, that will leave God's wrath for all the unelect to endure forever in hell. So we're really having to redefine what propitiation means uh, in order to, in order to uh, make sense out of this. So I think there's a better way to understand this. Now, now remember, we talked about this yesterday. The role of a priest includes intercession or advocacy and propitiation or atonement. Greg did a good job explaining this yesterday. In the Old Testament, the priest made atonement for, like think of Yom Kippurim, the, the often called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, remember what the high priest does? There is an atonement made with the two uh, goats, the, the scapegoat, or yeah, the, the scapegoat and the, uh, the goat that is slaughtered uh, there at the temple. The priest makes atonement according to God's directions, for what? The sins of the people. Now, then he also prays for or intercedes for the people. So the priesthood involves advocacy with the Father, intercession with the Father, and propitiation, the slaughtered goat and the scapegoat, which, which propitiation is the slaughtered goat, expiation or the removal of guilt is the scapegoat, taking our sins far away. Those two things are represented there. And that's all tied in with what Christ did in propitiation. But the priest advocate is an advocate with the Father through intercessory prayer, and he provides atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. Now listen, the priest in the Old Testament provides a limited atonement because he only atones for the sins of Israel, right? It's not, he doesn't atone for the sins of the Philistines. Uh, there, there is no atonement made for the sins of the Babylonians or the Assyrians, unless Babylonians join the people of God and become part of the covenant people, so long as they're out there in the pagan world, there is no atonement for them, right? Jesus, uh, the, the high priest doesn't atone for the sins of Persia or Greece or Rome. The high priest provides a limited atonement. It is only for the covenant people of God, Israel and the old covenant, and he advocates or intercedes only for the covenant people, and he provides the, the, the propitiatory sacrifice only for the covenant people. It's limited atonement, and the two things that are linked in the job of the priest are intercession or advocacy and atonement or propitiation. Those two things go together, and they're limited in scope only to the covenant people. Now, Jesus is being presented here as the great high priest of our confession, as Hebrews says. He's the great high priest, right? And Jesus intercedes for or advocates for who and propitiates for who? I think this is an important question. 
And let's look at what uh, we read here in John 17. So look at this. This is the night before Jesus dies. This prayer is appropriately called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is praying as an intercessory priest. And the question is, who is Jesus praying for here? And it would be very tempting for American Christians, if you just stopped an American Christian on the street, just your average Christian, and said, hey, the night before Jesus died, he, he prays a chapter-long prayer in John's gospel, John 17. Just say, hey, take a guess. Who do you think Jesus is praying for? It's the night before he's going to die. So he's doing, there's two priestly functions. The prayer which is an advocacy prayer, intercessory prayer of the priest. That's why we call it the high priestly prayer. And then the very next day, he's going to make propitiation or atonement, which is also the job of a priest to provide the lamb or the goat or whatever it may be for sacrifice. Okay, those are, those are the two priestly functions. They, they go together and they're always for the same group. My guess is the average American Christian would say, well, he's going to die for every single person in the world. So I'm sure he'll pray the night before for every single person in the world. So his priestly work would be a universal atonement and a universal intercessory prayer. Let's see if that's true. Let's look at this. Honestly, it's an amazing prayer <clears throat> for many reasons. But let's look at this one theme. Uh, John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So th this hour is the hour of his death throughout John's gospel. My hour has not yet come. It keeps saying, for they, he, he slipped through the crowd for his hour had not yet come. Well, now his hour has come, the hour of his death, which is also the hour of his lifting up or his glorification in John's gospel. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. So look at this. God gave Jesus authority over all human beings, over all flesh. What is Jesus going to do? This is just like Matthew 28, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So it sounds like Jesus' authority in Matthew 28 is a kingly authority that he then uses to bring people to faith in Christ. Okay, just a little hiatus here. I don't want to get too distracted on it. Matthew 28, Great Commission. We all know this text, right? Listen to it. All authority, you have given him all of, uh, authority over all flesh. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me as the resurrected Davidic king, Messiah, son of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, what's the next word? Therefore, and do what? Make disciples of all, in all, of, all, of all nations. Make disciples in all nations, of all nations. Which means preaching the gospel leading to conversion and baptism. That's why he says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very clear Trinitarian reference. And then he says, <clears throat> teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. End of Matthew's gospel. Do you see the logic? I have, I, I have all authority given to me from my Father. I've got all authority in heaven and earth. I'm going to be with you all the way until I return, until the end of the age, until I come back. So I've got all authority, and I'm going to be with you with that authority. Therefore, go make disciples. 
see conversions, baptisms, teaching them to observe, sanctification. So the only way our mission, the Great Commission, is going to be successful is because Jesus is backing us. He's going to be with us as we go, and he's got all authority so he can bring people to faith in Christ. That's the, great, that's the logic of the, of the Great Commission. You can't convert anybody. You can't sanctify anybody, but Jesus can through you because he's got all authority. Very similar line of logic here. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, now look, just like with the Great Commission, what is that authority about? Look, this is, this is amazing stuff. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So just like in the Great Commission, his authority brings about conversion. You have authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Okay? So we're, we're definitely talking here about conversion. People coming to Christ, people being saved. Who is the group that Jesus has as his goal to give eternal life to. He's got authority over all flesh. <clears throat> it doesn't say over some flesh, okay? It's not like he's got limited authority. <clears throat> all human beings, all creation, heaven and earth, he's got authority over everybody. He can give eternal life to whoever he wants. But he doesn't say, I've been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all in the world or to all people without exception or to all individuals on the earth. That's not what he says. He could do that. He has the authority over all flesh. He could do that. But that's not the mission that the Father has sent him on. Look, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to save all. We're, we're all into these all texts, right? But who is the all? Who is the all? All whom you have given him. Who has the Father given to the Son? Not everybody. but some. You want me to back that up? Let me leave John 17. Let's go to John uh, chapter 6. The bread of life chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters probably in the whole Bible. John 6 is endlessly fascinating to me. I love the whole chapter, every bit of it. <clears throat> so let's see, we're just going back. We're in the same gospel. So we're trying to figure out, remember here, John, John 11, He's going to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Who is the all whom the Father has given to the Son? Who is that group? All, I've got authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. I've got authority over all flesh, but I'm going to give it to those whom you have given me. What is, what is that group? <clears throat> Let's look at this. So Jesus is talking to those who are rejecting him in John 6. Uh, the 5,000 he fed the day before, most of them walk away. And even the disciples, it looks like, are tempted to fall away, but they say, no, You've got the words of eternal life, Peter says, we're sticking with you. So look, I, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So what, what's going on here? Jesus is talking here about those who do not. All right, so, but I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus is explaining why some don't believe and why some believe. Now, now here it is again. All that the Father gives me, does that sound familiar from John 17, all that the Father gives me? What are they going to do? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let, let, me, just, let me just make a side comment here. Without denying the sovereignty of God and salvation, because he's teaching it right here, 
God has chosen a group of individuals to give as a love gift to the Son. This is from eternity past. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he's giving this love gift to the elect, the bride of Christ, to Christ. That in no way means that there's not a real offer of the gospel that stands right here in the same verse. So God has an elect group that he's giving to the Son. Every single person that the Father gives to the Son will come to me. So that doesn't make us robots. God can ordain in his sovereignty and give you the gift of faith so that he sees to it that you definitely, truly, with no dropouts, every single one he chooses comes to Christ because he grants faith and the willingness to come. So God gives that gift and we come. <clears throat> At the same time, we truly come. And as we exert our will, we want to come, we desire to come. He changes our will so that we truly want to come. But then here's the amazing counterpoint here. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So don't ever think the doctrine of God's election or God's choosing to give a certain group of people to Jesus who will come to Jesus. Don't ever think that rules out <clears throat> the idea that if someone comes to Jesus, he'll be cast out. No, whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In the Greek, it's, I think it's double negative. It's like, I will never ever cast out. I will never, never cast out. It's this profound statement. Uh, John Bunyan uh, loved this verse. It's one of his, I think this is one of John Bunyan's favorite verses, John 6, 37. So, so hear me out here. Whatever you believe about election, and I do believe passionately in unconditional election being taught all over these texts, don't ever think, well, what if I come to God in true faith, but I'm not elect? Will he cast me out? Listen, no one has ever come to Jesus and been cast out by Jesus. So right now, you feel exhausted, spiritually drained, dry as a bone. If you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. You screwed up this week in some terrible way, right? You've sinned, like 1 John said. If you will turn in humble faith to Jesus right now, he's not going to despise you. He's not going to kick you out. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will never, never cast out. There's nothing in Jesus who wants to cast you out. Now listen, if you do come to Jesus, he's not gonna cast you out, but you're gonna find out that if you do come, that's because the Father chose you and gave you to the Son, right? So the, the ultimately decisive reason anyone comes is because the Father chose us unconditionally and gave us to the Son and made us willing to believe. But it is, it is true that everyone who comes to Jesus will be accepted, every single person. <clears throat> now, let's get back to the main point. Who is the group the Father has given me? That's what we're asking from John 17, that prayer. Who is that group? Look at verse 38. This is amazing. I mean, this really is amazing. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, now just, just follow me here for a second. Let me, let, me, let me do this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm going to just draw a huge circle here around this section. This is an absolutely incredible text. It just, it's one of those moments where the murky water becomes clear and you can see God's intent going all the way down to the mission and the purpose in sending his son. This also helps inform verses like John 3, 16, honestly, because they're both written by John. They're both a couple chapters, three chapters apart in the same gospel. <clears throat> so this is absolutely amazing. Let's look at it. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven... Then he says, okay, not to do my own kind of independent will from the Father, but I want to do the will of him who sent me. <clears throat> and this is it. And this is the will of him who sent me. So, 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 so look at this. 
I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do God's will, the Father's will. And this is the Father's will who sent me. So look, look, I came into the world. I was sent by the Father from heaven to earth. I've come down from heaven to do the Father's will. And this is the will of him who sent me. So I mean, this is very close language to John 3, 16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sent his son. So Jesus says, here's why I came from heaven to earth. Here's why I came, to fulfill God's will, to, to, to do what the Father willed. This is, and this is it. This is the will of him who sent me, to save every individual in the world. No. This is breathtaking stuff. Look. That, so here you got a purpose clause, that, that I should lose nothing. Look at this. I came from heaven to earth. I was sent by the Father to earth, not to do my own will, but to do his will. Here's the will of him who sent me. Here's why I came to earth. That, I love purpose clauses. I think this is the famous purpose clause throughout the Greek New Testament that's used over and over again. That, I have to double check. <coughs> that I should lose nothing of all the people in the world. No, that's not what it says. I came from heaven to earth, sent by my Father to fulfill His will, not my independent will. I'm submitted to Him. To fulfill His will. This is His will. The will of Him who sent me. That, here's the purpose. This is why Jesus came to earth. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, I was sent by the Father into the world, not to do my own independent thing, but to do what the Father has willed for me to do. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that I should save all of my sheep, all of my elect. Now I'm going to lose none of all the individual people the Father has given me. So those whom the Father has given to the Son, he's going to lose how many of them? So if you're wondering, how do we know this is the elect? Here's how we know. Now, let's just, let's use the logic of the text. How many of these individuals is Jesus going to lose in his mission to earth? This is the will of him who sent me that, that I should lose uh, not many of all that he's, no, no, no. That I should lose most, no that I should lose nothing of all, nothing of all, which means I'm going to lose zero people that he has given me. So what would you call the group of people, the individuals in the world that Jesus came and he's going to save every single one with no exceptions? That's the elect. That's the very definition of who the elect are. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then God sent Jesus into the world to save those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. They're called his sheep. They're called his bride. They're called his people. They're called his elect. They're called his chosen ones. They're called the true people of God. So Jesus was sent to lose nothing of all that he has given me, but to raise it up on the last day. So let's go back to John 17, high priest of prayer, the night before he died. Let's see if we can, we can shed some light here. <clears throat> Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him <clears throat> all, you've given him authority over all flesh. Remember this? You've given him authority over all flesh. And what's the goal? 
With the purpose of what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So again, all here is not all in the world. It's all whom you have given him. This is limited atonement, particular redemption. God sent Jesus into the world to save all those whom the Father had given the Son. That's particular redemption. That's effective atonement. I'm going to lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. I mean, do you hear these? I'm serious. If you're listening right now and you, you, you think about the lunch and you think what I'm saying is, is crazy, maybe even evil, because you think it's just like disparaging to the cross of Christ. I'm telling you, it's, it's not disparaging to the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ. This is what he came to do. God gave him authority over all flesh, including humans, animals, angels, everything, nature, everything, authority over all, all flesh, to give eternal life to every single individual whom the Father has given him, which is, we just saw in John 6, it's the elect, it's the sheep, it's all those who will truly believe. This is limited atonement. The, the mission is not to save every individual, it's to save every single one the Father has given the Son, which are those who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It fits perfectly with, with uh, Romans 8. I don't know if I have it here in, in my notes, probably don't. But it fits perfectly with Romans 8 that those who before knew he predestined, those he predestined he called, those he called he justified, those he justified he glorified. He's going to save all of his true people. Now, now, now look here. I'm going, to, I'm going to go back again this time to John chapter 10. Look at, look at this. So every Christian loves this verse. I am the good shepherd. Amen. Amen. He is the good shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. Just over and over again, I am falling into worldly thinking and self-centered thinking and greed and selfishness and coveting and jealousy and irritability and anger and pride and whatever it may be. And God pulls me back out because I have a good shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. We have a good shepherd, a wonderful shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? Look, the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for whom? For the sheep. This is particular redemption. This is limited atonement right here in the text. This is effective atonement, per, uh, definite atonement. The good shepherd does not lay down his life for the wolves, the hired hands, the hireling who runs away. He's not laying his life down for all without exception. He's laying his life down for those whom the Father has given him. Because remember, the Father sent him in the world to do what? To lose nothing of all that he has given to Jesus. Which has to be the elect. I mean, just has to be the elect. It's the sheep. The sheep are the elect. And the elect are the sheep. It's two different ways of speaking of the same thing. Elect emphasizes God's chosen, uh, the chosenness aspect. The sheep also indicate uh, that, but it also shows here our neediness of the shepherd and his care for us. Okay? 
So the good shepherd lays down his life specifically with the purpose of saving the sheep. This is limited atonement, particular redemption. Look at a few verses later, John 10, 14. So again, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, now, now listen again to this language. I know my own, and my own know me. To know, we, we spent a whole lot of time on knowing recently. To know, to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus is another way to talk about being a Christian. We talked about that. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's a covenant love. Joseph did not know Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. It's a covenant love. Um, in Galatians 4, now that you have... Uh, now that you have come to know God, now that you know God or rather have been known by God. He talks about conversion as knowing God. Uh, Jeremiah, God says, before you were born, I knew you. Uh, before, before, yeah, before you were formed, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So this knowing is a covenant knowing. It's, it's a salvation saving knowing. Jesus says at Matthew 7 at the final judgment, people say, we cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It's the same thing here. It's a saving covenant knowing, a, a covenant love that, that we see here in, in this text. So look, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. In other words, I have a saving relationship with my elect, the, the chosen sheep the Father has given me. I know my own. And my own know me. Jesus knows in a saving way all of his sheep, and all of his sheep know him in a saving way. And then he compares it to amazing, and this is, this is incredible, just as the Father knows me. Wow, and I know the Father. I mean, that, that is a high level of knowing. It's, it's an intimate love relationship. And Jesus is comparing this knowing of the sheep to the shepherd and the shepherd to the sheep to the intra-Trinitarian knowing. Wow, between the Father and the Son by the Spirit. It's an, it's an astonishing thing. I know the Spirit is not mentioned here, but you can get into Trinitarian theology later. But the, 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 the intra-Trinitarian knowing love relationship is, is, is what our relationship with the shepherd is compared to. And not that we're in the same league as the Trinity. We're not God. But my goodness, this is astonishingly high stuff, a high level of stuff here. And then look, here is limited atonement again. I mean, really, he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus here is not teaching that he lays down his life for all without exception or for all in the same way. I, mean, I don't know how, I want to be humble here, but, but sincerely, I don't know how you can read this text and not see a particular way in which Jesus died to effectively save his own, which are his sheep, which are his elect, which are those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world and gave to the Son as a love gift. And whom the Father sent Jesus into the world to effectively save. This is limited atonement. It's effective or definite redemption. And then look at this. Jesus is speaking right now in John 10 to Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees. Jesus is speaking as a Jewish teacher to other Jews. And you've got to get yourself in the Jewish mindset. They think in terms of us 
godly covenant people, Israel, and those pagan, ungodly, non-covenant people, the Gentiles, those dirty pagan dogs out there. And Jesus says, hey, when I say I lay down my life for the sheep, I'm not just talking about the elect remnant of Israel or the elect individuals within ethnic Israel. That's not what I'm limiting this to. Who is it for? Well, this really is incredible. What does he say next? I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is this fold? This fold is, I don't know where to even write this. Can I, I'm going to mess this up if I write the wrong way. This fold is ethnic Israel. Yeah, can't write that very well. This fold is ethnic Israel. This fold. So he says, listen, I have other sheep. In other words, I have non-Jewish elect individuals. Non-ethnically Jewish sheep. I have Gentile sheep. They're not of this fold of ethnic Israel. They're not, they're not living in Jerusalem. They're not even descendants ethnically of Abraham. They are spiritual descendants of Abraham because they have his faith. But no, no, I've got other sheep who are not of this fold. And then look at this. This, again, this is effective atonement. It's, it's um, effectual atonement. What does he say next? I must bring them also. Got the squiggly line going here. Trying to differentiate my lines. I must bring them. I mean, what's, what's absolutely incredible about that statement is the word must. I must bring them, that is Gentile sheep spread throughout the world. I must bring them also. So I, have, I have other sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also. This is why we believe in effective atonement. The, it may be limited in its extent, but it is guaranteed in its result. It is an effective atonement. This is why the word propitiation doesn't need to be robbed of its meaning. To propitiate means to secure the removal of wrath for God's own true people. To atone for means to actually atone for. To take away sin means to really remove sin. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. I must bring them, the elect Gentiles across the world, God's true sheep across the world. I'm going to bring them also. And look, how many are going to fail to listen? None. They will listen to my voice. I mean, again, they will listen. Every single one of them who are elect across the world, not just from ethnic Jews, but Gentiles, not from the fold across the world, I'm going to bring, I must bring them, they will. There's absolutely no doubt here that they will. They will listen to my voice. There'll be one flock and one shepherd. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not, just, it's not going to be like a Jewish flock and a Gentile flock. No, no, no. They're not going to be split. No, no, no. There's going to be one flock of all the true sheep, all the true sons of Abraham, which are both, which are believers from every ethnicity, every tribe and tongue, and also one shepherd who died to secure their salvation, who laid down his life for the sheep in particular. But they will listen to my voice. This is not because God looked down the corridors of time and saw which individuals in human history would respond positively to the gospel, and therefore he chose them and made them sheep. Okay? I, mean, I could see how someone could take it that way. Someone from maybe a more Arminian side, but okay, okay, they might say, okay, I grant you, sheep is the elect. But God elects those he foresees will believe. 
God looks into the future and sees those who will respond in faith to the voice of Jesus, and he chooses to make them sheep. So that he, you, could, you could rightly say that you are a sheep because God knew you would believe, and he could also reverse it and say, if you don't believe, if you're not a sheep, it's because you don't believe. So the determining factor of what makes you a sheep is whether or not you respond to the voice of Jesus. I don't know if you're following that or not, but uh, let me see if I can sort of illustrate that. So one way to say it would be, see, how can I write this? God foresees faith first, that you would respond well to the voice, and therefore God chooses to make you a sheep. Okay, that would be the Arminian way. God foresees faith. He foresees that you would listen, listen to my voice, to Jesus' voice. He, he foresees that you of your free will with provenient grace would make the right decision, and therefore he foresees that you're going to have saving faith. Therefore, he chooses to make you a sheep. Or the other way you could look at it from the unconditional election side is this. No one left to themselves apart from regenerating grace, not provenient grace, without regenerating grace, we're dead in sin. No one is going to choose to use their will to choose Christ because we hate Christ in our fallen state. The sinful mind, the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8, 7, 8, 9 area says. Ephesians 1, we are dead in sin. We are choosing willingly to follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We are all uh, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God made us alive. By grace, we've been saved. So from the unconditional election side, we were all hopeless cases. God looked into the future and saw we were all dead in sin. None of us were going to choose the right thing apart from regenerating grace. And therefore, God chose us to be sheep first unconditionally. And that is why we have faith. I don't know if you can see that on the corner of the screen. Oh, that, that, it stopped there. But uh, I was trying to finish the words. Let me see if it'll come back. That, that, the sheep is why, I, I was writing here, sheep therefore leads to faith. Uh, the, the, the thing gave out, I'll, I'll get it in a second. So, so that's one way to look at it. But which is it? Is it that God saw we would believe and therefore he made us sheep? Or are we chosen to be sheep and that's why we believe? Is God's choice what creates the faith? Or is our foreseen faith, faith what creates the, the choice to be sheep? All right? By the way, whichever view you take, you still see a limited atonement in this text because Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep and even the other Gentile sheep that are not of the fold of Israel, he's gonna bring them. They're gonna listen. He knows his own, right? He, he, if you go back here, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, okay? But let's see, which, which causes which? This is uh, John 10, a few verses later. Jesus answered them, I told you and you, what? Let me try this. You do not believe. Is my pen working again? Okay. You do not believe. So th this is significant. Jesus is saying, hey, I have told you the truth about myself and the kingdom, and you do not believe. Let me make very clear. Their rejection of Jesus is real choice on their part, and uh, they are accountable. Okay, the, the, whenever someone chooses to reject Jesus, that is a real decision that they're making. 
That decision is not independent of God's ultimate sovereignty over all things, but it is a real choice. If someone rejects Jesus, it's because they don't want him. And that not wanting him that leads to rejecting him is a real wickedness in the heart of a human being that we are accountable for and responsible for, yet not denying that God is ultimately sovereign over conversion, that he can grant faith to whom he will. So, okay, okay. So this is real choice. They're accountable. You do not believe. But then look at this. The works, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So Jesus says, hey, there is sufficient evidence right here. The works that I do in my Father's name, they're, they're a witness about me. The works I do prove, they bear witness that I am the true Son of God. No one can do the things I do, feeding the 5,000 and healing the sick and on and on, teaching the way I do. No one can do this unless God is empowering that, right? That's what we're seeing here. That's true. But then Jesus says, you still don't believe. And this verse is extraordinarily breathtaking. I've listened to numerous Arminians, especially online. There's a lot of YouTubers who are, who are kind of anti-Calvinist YouTubers. They call themselves different things. They don't often like the word Arminian. They might call themselves provisionists or whatever. And they try, I've heard them, I've heard people try to overturn this verse. I mean, talking Mike Winger, some of you know he's an American gospel. It's one of the good guys, the first American gospel. I, I like Mike Winger, generally speaking. He's a very prominent Christian YouTuber, but he, he's, a, he's an Arminian. And I've heard him try to handle this verse and he struggles. I mean, he just doesn't, there's no good answer to this from that. I mean, I, I want to sound gracious. I don't think there's a satisfying answer to this. Let's look at it real quick. <clears throat> so look, look at this with me. <clears throat> His works give sufficient witness about who Jesus is. But then look at this incredible statement. But you do not believe. <clears throat> you do not believe that this is breathtaking stuff. Why do a number of those listening to Jesus, these religious leaders, not believe. And this is absolutely breathtaking because you are not among my sheep. Now, I want you just to look at that for a moment. So, I told you the truth. Jesus is saying, you don't believe. I've done enough works to prove to you that I am who I am. I've, I've done works in my Father's name that bear witness about me. You've got plenty of evidence to believe that I am who I claim to be, okay? You've got plenty of evidence for that. But you do not believe. And then Jesus is going to explain why people don't believe, despite sufficient witness and evidence. Why do people, and remember, it's a real choice that they're accountable for to reject the gospel. Why do people not believe? But you do not believe because... I mean, I think this is stunning insight. Drop my pen here. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So let's go back to the question that we were asking earlier. Let's think about this for a second. Does Jesus see faith in the future, foreseen faith, the God the Father, and then choose to make you a sheep? Or does Jesus choose, or does the Father choose to make you a sheep, and therefore you believe? Now, do you see the two options here? If you believe God sees that you're going to believe, 
from eternity past and therefore chooses to make you a sheep, you believe in conditional election, which is what a lot of people believe. Uh, this is the more Arminian view, the Wesleyan Arminian view. So God foresees your saving faith and therefore chooses to make you into a sheep. The Calvinist perspective, the Reformed perspective says, no, God unconditionally apart from anything in you chooses you by sheer grace to be a sheep, and that is what brings about your faith. That's what secures your faith. That's what God, that's what guarantees that you will believe. If God had not chosen you to be a sheep, you would never believe. But God choosing you to be a sheep guarantees that you will believe. Which of those two is being taught by Jesus in John 10, 26? He says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not part of my sheep. So what causes what? In this verse, it's, it's not being a sheep, not among the sheep is what, is what results in not believing. So Jesus is clearly teaching this option right here. He's teaching this option right here at the bottom. Because you don't believe because you're not among my elect, those whom the Father chose to give to the Son before the foundation of the world, those to whom the Father gave. Because you're not among that group, you, of your own true choice and you're accountable for it, you're not believing. Which means if Jesus were to say to you, you do believe, let's flip it around, you do believe because you are among my sheep. In other words, he's saying faith is the result of being a sheep and unbelief, let's, let's see if I can write it up on here. I, I don't know if this is still letting me write. Maybe not right now. I, I'll get it back. Uh, unbelief results in you, I mean, excuse me, not being a sheep results in unbelief but being a sheep results in belief. In other words, God's choice brings about faith and God passing over someone and not making them among the sheep means they're going to be left in unbelief. That does not mean God is forcing people not to believe against their will or that God is pulling them like puppets on a string, forcing them to sin. No, we in our natural state are unbelievers, dead in sin, hating what's true, not wanting what's true. We don't believe. It's a real choice that we're accountable for. And if God left the whole world in that state, we, he would have done no one anything wrong, okay? He would have done no injustice. Look, God doesn't deserve to make any of us sheep. And if God were to leave all of us to ourselves, none of us would believe because none of us would be sheep and God would have done none of us anything wrong. We would be getting precisely what we and our wicked selves deserve, which is we're not part of God's flock. We don't deserve to be part of God's flock. We don't deserve to be chosen by the Father. We don't deserve to be given as a gift to the Son. We don't deserve to have the Son sent into the world to save all those whom the Father has given him. We don't deserve that none would perish of those whom he's given. We don't deserve that the good shepherd would lay down his life for us, the sheep. So if God leaves someone in unbelief, not choosing them to be part of his flock, he's done no, no wrong. You know, if he, if he says, I'm choosing Jacob and passing over Esau, he's done no wrong to either one. And then again, look at the next line here. My sheep, let's start over here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, again, saving knowing, and they follow me. Now, why is that? Why is that? It, it's not that God chose us because he knew we would follow him. No, that, this verse denies that. Left to ourselves, we would be unbelieving if we were not part of God's sheep. If, to be the sheep is what creates believing. If we're not believing, it's because we're not part of the sheep. So my sheep hear my voice. Here's the point. Here's the point. Let me see if I can make this work. Being a sheep, which is chosen by God, is what brings about our he, uh, hearing his voice it's what brings about God, uh, it's because God knows them, and it's what brings about our following Him. 
So it's because God shows us and he knows us that we hear Jesus's voice with the ears of faith because he gives us those ears of regeneration and that's why we follow him. And then look what else he does. I give them eternal life. Only the sheep and all the sheep receive eternal life. They will never perish. Not a single sheep will perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's, who has, look, my father again who has given them to me uh, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So again, the sheep are those whom the father has given to Jesus. That, that's who the sheep are. My sheep are those whom the father has given me. All the sheep hear the voice because God knows them in a saving covenant relationship that he's chosen unconditionally to put them in. And therefore he creates the desire to follow Jesus. He's going to give us eternal life. All the sheep and only the sheep, the sheep will never perish. All of them uh, without exception, will be kept safe. None of them will perish. No one, not the devil, not even themselves, will be able to get them out of the hand of God, of Jesus or of the Father because the Father has given them to me. So this is the love gift of the Father. It's the sheep, it's those he chose, it's the elect. And remember, if you do not believe, why is that? It's because you are not among my sheep. And if you do believe, it's because you're among the sheep. So again, being a sheep comes first. That's who the father chooses to give to the son. And it leads to believing. It's, it's not conditional election. It's unconditional and it leads to faith in Christ. <clears throat> now, you think we're going on here for a long time. We're, we still got a long way to go, Lord willing. So let's go back to the high priestly prayer because we're trying to figure out what's being taught here. Forgive a bit of stream of consciousness here, uh, but let's just look at it. Father, the hour has come for his death, the night before he died. High priestly prayer, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him uh, authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So Jesus has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? To all whom you have given him. That's the sheep, that's the elect, that's those who would never have believed if God had not chosen them, and that's who Jesus came to die for. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So look at this. I've who has Jesus manifested God's name to? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. <clears throat> Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Talking specifically uh, here of his current disciples and whatnot. Of course, Judas is accepted. Verse 9, I am praying for them. Now look, this is amazing. I'm praying for them. This is amazing. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Okay, we go back to the issue that we've been talking about. <clears throat> I don't even know if I can spell this correctly. Intercession. Intercession and atonement. Remember, the two jobs that go together with the priest. He intercedes for the covenant people. He atones for the covenant people. He does not intercede for the nations. He does not atone for the nations. It's a limited intercession. It's a limited atonement, but it's an effective intercession. It's an effective atonement. So again here, you see, that you, you see these things going together. The next morning, what's Jesus going to do? The very next morning, Jesus is going to make atonement on the cross when he's glorified. Right now, you've got his priestly intercession. These two works go hand in hand, Okay. They're not the same work, but they go intimately together. And the atonement is effective in part because of intercession. And the intercession is, if, is effective because of the atonement. They go together. Like 1 John 2, 
He's our advocate for people who've sinned. Why? Because he's righteous. Why? Because he's propitiation for our sins. So intercession and atonement go together. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. This is particular prayer, limited prayer. He literally says, I'm not praying for the unelect is how I would take that. I'm not praying for the pagan world out there that's unbelieving. I'm not praying for those who are not your sheep. I'm praying for those whom you've given me, which are the sheep. I came to die for the sheep. This is particular redemption, limited atonement. And then he says here again, um, all mine are yours. Yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Again, this is not everyone. It's a particular group. Okay, let's look at verse 20. In case you think he's talking only about the apostles here and not talking about all of his sheep throughout the world, that's not true because he already said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, worldwide sheep. Let's look at this. I do not ask for these only. So I'm not, I'm not just asking for, for these only. Let me get this to work. I do not ask for these only, but for who? Also for those who will believe in me through their word. So there you go. Those who will believe. So th that's, that's you and me right there. You are in the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died, if you know Jesus. I do not ask for these only. In other words, I'm not asking only for my disciples minus Judas, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So um, Jesus makes, uh, G Jesus intercedes. Only for the sheep, which includes current and future believers. Current and future believers, Jesus intercedes for. The next day, he is going to make atonement on the cross. Who has he come to save? I've come from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Who is he going to atone for? The sheep, which again is current and future. I don't know. Can you do the, the quotes underneath something, I guess? Yeah, yeah that, that'll work like that. So the current and future believers. I do not ask for these only, the present believers or disciples minus Judas, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. Jesus is praying right here, uh, only for, whoops. How do I erase this? Jesus is praying only for his people. Not the world that is those who will never believe. Oh, I didn't even show up on there. Sorry about that. Jesus is praying only for his true people, not the whole world. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. So, so what's, what's Jesus' desire? <clears throat> what's he after here? That they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is longing what he's praying for, and no question what he's going to die to accomplish tomorrow. I mean, you got to get this. Intercession and atonement go together in the work of the priest. The same group that is interceded for is the same group that's atoned for. That was true in the Old Testament, and Jesus is a typological fulfillment as the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He desires 
prays for and tomorrow is going to die for, what? Father, I desire that they also, is this everybody in the world? Who is the they also? Who is the they? It's whom you have given me, which we have seen is the sheep only, not the wolves. It's the sheep only, not the wolves. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, who is that? It's everyone who's going to believe in me through their word. It's all who will ever believe in me. Those are the ones I'm dying to take away their sin. I'm going to take away the sin of all who will believe. I'm going to secure the salvation of all who will believe. I'm going to secure the conversion and the faith and the saving faith of all who will believe. I'm going to give the gift of faith to the believer so they can become a believer. And his desire is that they also, whom you have given me, the elect, the sheep, will be with me where I am to see my glory. This matches up with what Paul teaches. So this is not just taught by John and Jesus. It's taught by Paul. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, look, for her. And look, we again have that purpose right here. That. What's the purpose for which he gave up his life? that he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a particular atonement, an effective redemption. He is going to do this, and it's not for everybody. Who is it for? It's for the church. He gave himself up for her. So John Piper has, has talked about this. He said, look, every wife should understand this. A husband can have a real love for all women and for all men's wives in some sort of platonic, godly, pure Christ-honoring sense, but the husband is going to have a special love for his bride in a way that he doesn't have it for other women. And this text is teaching not that God, Jesus loved the church and the world. Uh, he loved the elect and the unelect in the same way and gave himself up for her and them in the same way. No, I don't think that makes any sense out of this text. This text assumes that his work on the cross is going to be effective for some. Who is that? It's the church. He gave himself up specifically for his, his wife. And it has the purpose that he might do all these things, sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her with the water of the word, present her to the, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is effective. It's going to happen. It will be successful. Jesus will do that. Matthew 1.21, you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Who did Jesus come to save? His name is Ye Yahweh saves, Yeshua. Why call him Yahweh saves? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And, you know, a Jewish audience might think that um, the phrase his people refers only to Israel. But uh, you, you find out pretty quickly by the time you get to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that it's all true disciples from all nations. It's all true disciples from all nations. 
So it's not simply ethnic Israel. No, his people, you find out by the end of Matthew, if it's your first time reading it as a Jewish person in the first century, oh, his people is not ethnically bound. It's all true disciples in all nations, baptizing them, etc. But his de- he came with the intention of saving not every individual, but of his people, and he will effectively do just that. Uh, Paul speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders at Miletus near Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So look, <clears throat> you've already got here all the flock, which is referring to the local church at Ephesus, but it's referring to God's sheep, his people, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, literally to shepherd who? The church of God, look, which he obtained with his own blood. That is an effective redemption. Jesus bought the church, all the flock of God with his blood and his blood was effective to do so. Revelation 5, 9, they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, the lamb. Now look at this, for you were slain. <clears throat> so you've got the slaying of Jesus and by your blood, so you've got the blood of Jesus, what happened? You ransomed people. This is very interesting. You ransomed people, people for God. What? from every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't say, like universal atonement, you would assume it would say, you, the lamb, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed every tribe and tongue and people and nation to God. That's not what it says, because he didn't do that. What does it say? You were slain, and by your blood, what did the blood of Jesus on the cross effectively accomplish? You ransomed. Now, to just follow this again. You ransomed people for God from. You bought, right? You, you, you ransomed, you bought people for God from every people group. He doesn't say he ransomed every people group. If that's what that meant, then every people group would be in heaven. But no, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, if you look at every tribe and language and people and nation as 30 plus billion people who've ever lived, Jesus bought out of each group specific individuals who are the sheep, the true bride, the church, the elect, the true people. Hebrews 13.8 speaks about uh, all on earth, uh, all who dwell on earth, which is unbelievers, I just remember that um, in Revelation, this is unbelievers, earth dwellers. They will worship it. This is the beast, antichrist type figure. They will worship it. So all unbelievers on earth will worship the beast. And then it says everyone, so this is all encompassing. So all and everyone. So we know they're unbelievers because all earth dwellers in Revelation are unbelievers and here they're worshiping the beast. Every one of them is. So they're clearly unbelievers, right? These are, these are not God's true people. So all the unelect, all the earth dwellers will worship the beast, every single one of them. And, and why is it that every single one of them will worship the beast and none of God's true people and sheep will follow the beast? Instead, we're going to follow the lamb to our death in this world, to resurrection in the next. Why is that? Because it says here, 
They're going to they're gonna worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. <laughs> That's just incredible. Re really. So it says here, everyone whose name has not been written, when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now do, you, do you see the logic of this verse? All unbelievers will follow sin and evil and antichrist and Satan, every single one of them. Why is that? Because God did not elect to save them. This does not mean God's responsible for their moral evil. No, remember, left to ourselves, we are all going to be earth dwellers. We're all going to worship the beast and we're every single one of us is going to do what's wrong. But the reason why every single one of these unbelievers does what they does is because God did not write their name in the book of life. It says everyone whose name has not been written, who writes the names in the book of life before the foundation of the world? Only the triune God. Let's say God the Father. That's the way it's spoken of in scripture. God shows us in Christ. So God, God did not choose to write their names before the foundation of the world in the book of life. That's why they follow the beast. God is not to be blamed for their moral evil. They should to blame themselves. But God did not stop them in their wild pursuit of evil. He allowed them to go their own way, did not intervene to save them, did not write their name in the book of life, did not unconditionally elect them, left them in their state of fallenness, that he might ultimately, according to Romans 9, 22 and 23, display his wrath, holiness, justice, and power over them in judgment in eternity, and that he might display his grace, mercy, patience, kindness, forgiveness, and love to, his, to those who are written in that book, undeservedly and unconditionally for all of eternity. But look at this. If your name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, you will follow sin and end up perishing in your sin. But here's another thing that we see. Uh, do you see uh, where I'm going to go here with limited atonement in this text? Do you see where we're going? It says here, what? The lamb who was slain. See that? The lamb who was slain. So let's look at this. We know that everyone whose name is not in the book of life is an unbeliever. But, but that means reversally, every single person who is written in the book of life is a believer will follow the lamb. Are you following me? If every single, if all of the people, every single person who's not written in the book of life follows the beast and perishes in sin, then what does that tell you about everyone who does follow the lamb? Their name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's, that's what makes the difference. What makes the difference is not ultimately, decisively, me. Like Romans 9 says, it's not of him who, it's not of human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy, ultimately. It doesn't make us unresponsible. It just means the decisive call is God's because he's God, and that's the way this is. So if your name has, so if it's not been written in the book of life, you're going to be an unbeliever, you're going to follow the beast, you're going to perish, all of them will, everyone will. But if your name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, you're going to be saved. And here's what we see. Do you see here? Slain. Look at this. God the Father wrote names of all of his sheep, all of his believers, all of his people, all those whom he was giving to the Son. He wrote them before the foundation of the world. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Same exact language as Ephesians 1. So God chose us before 
the foundation of the world. And what that looks like symbolically in Revelation is he wrote your name down, name by name, every single person he elected to be a sheep, every single person he unconditionally elected for salvation, he wrote in the book of life, the book of uh, life, of salvation, before the foundation of the world, undeservedly apart from anything we did. And then the lamb was slain. And we're told that the book of life is of the lamb who was slain. This implies, I think, clearly what we've seen consistently in these other texts. What does it imply? That the lamb was slain specifically and effectually to save every single person written in the book of life. If your name was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, the lamb was slain specifically for those names in that book. That's why it's the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Why connect the slaying of the lamb with names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life? Because that list of names is the precise list of names Jesus died to save. And again, if you don't believe me, we go back to where we were earlier. <clears throat> I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Why did Jesus come down from heaven? This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all these given me, but raise it up on the last day. The list of names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. What do we find out again? Jesus is going to what? He's going to lose nothing of all that the Father has given. Every single name in the book of life, he was slain to secure the salvation of. And that, I believe, is why, excuse me, the lamb who was slain has got what? a book of life with names written before the foundation of the world. He died to secure the salvation of everyone who is written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. So again, we're seeing a consistent teaching. Romans chapter eight. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Just note here, who is being spoken of? What shall we say? This is believers only. If God is for us, God is only for the believer in, uh, he's only for the elect, truly. Who can be against us? I'm going to skip that verse. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So now we know for sure the us is God's elect. And it's those who are justified. It is God who justifies. They are not condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, now let's follow the logic here of Romans 8. Because it's, it's really amazing. Okay. Watch this. Jesus was given up for us all. And look at this. He's interceding for us. And let's also not miss his death is mentioned again here. His resurrection is mentioned here. And his, um, his, uh, his um, sitting at the right hand of God, his ascension and his uh, time of intercession is right here. So, so follow this. He who did not, I also want to make sure I include the, the, the underline here, us all. Okay, so the we's and the us's have to be referring to who? The we's and the us's in this verse have to be referring to who? They have to be referring to God's elect. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is God who justifies. So those who are justified will be glorified, these are God's elect, his chosen before the foundation of the world. And here's what we're told. Two things Jesus is doing for God's 
elect for us, for us all. Two things Jesus did or is doing for us. And they're right there on the screen, crystal clear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Again, gave him up is referring to him dying, obviously. Gave him up, let him face death. Didn't spare him any whipping, any wrath, any judgment. He gave him up for us all, all the elect. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can, you know, it's hard to even follow all my underline here, but us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So are you seeing here where I'm going? Um, gave him up for us all. Jesus is interceding for us. And again, we've got another little us here. The same group in this passage that Jesus is interceding for is the same group he died for. Right? So here, he died, he was raised, he ascended to the right hand of God, and he's making intercession for us. There is no question in my mind that in this text, just like in John 17, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you've given me. And I'm also praying for all those who will believe in me through their message. So I'm not praying for the unelect. I'm praying for the elect. I'm not praying for the wolves. I'm praying for the sheep. That's John 17. Again, Jesus, it's the, that's his intercession the night before he dies. He's interceding only for his true people, all those who will believe, not the world, but for all those who will believe throughout the world. And then the next morning he's going to die. So again, we, we see the priestly role of intercession and atonement linked together. It's for the same group. Here we see the exact same thing. G God gave up Jesus for us all, which in context has to be all the elect, not all the world. And then Jesus is, he died, he was raised, he's, he's, he's ascended, he's at the right hand, and he is doing what? He's interceding for us, for us all, for all the elect, all God's true people. So again, you have uh, once again linked together, and I think this is really remarkable. You have atonement in verse 32, linked again with intercession. And what is that? That's verse 34. The group that is atoned for is the group that God, that, that Christ intercedes for. And that means his atonement is not a kind of atonement that can still land you in hell. Goliath was atoned for and he's still in hell or he's in hell. Uh, how does that work? No, this atonement is going to actually save us and the intercession is going to guarantee that the atonement is effective and the atonement guarantees the intercession is effective. These two things go together. Let's look for a second here at the logic of Romans 8.32. Okay, let, let, let's look at the logic of Romans 8.32. We'll, we'll use the kind of big highlighter here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You understand that this promise, which John Piper says it's his favorite verse in the Bible, Jerry Ediger says it's his favorite verse in the Bible. If John Piper and Jerry Ediger have the same favorite verse, we better listen to what this verse has to say. And of all crazy things, this verse, this amazing verse, this unbelievably comforting and reassuring verse for the believer teaches an implied and an implicit and an, I think, undeniable limited atonement or particular redemption. Look, God did not spare his own son, not one bit of the lash, not the crown of thorns, not the mockery, not the spitting, not the wrath of God. Most significantly, he didn't spare his son. He didn't, he didn't leave out any of the punishment. He brought all of it down on Jesus in our, in our place. But he gave him up for us all. In context, us all is the elect. How will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. Now you've got to follow this here. You've got to see this. I hope you see it already. He gave him up for us all. And he graciously will give us all things. If these two groups, I realize all is being used differently here than there. I realize that. But if the, if the two us's here are not the same group, then, th then, this, then this verse falls apart. In other words, the way we know that God is going to meet all of our needs, he, we know that he will graciously give us all things that we need for life and godliness and for now and for eternity. We know that he's going to give us all things. Why? Because he gave up his son for us all. Now, if the all that Jesus gave up his son for includes the unelect and the wolves and the non-sheep and everybody who die as unbelievers, if Jesus, gave, if Jesus was given up by the Father, not spared by the Father, but given up for every single individual on the earth without distinction, including the unelect, this promise loses its meaning. The logic falls apart. Let's, let's try it, kind of paraphrasing John Piper. God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, every individual in the world, including those who perish in their sin, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Wait, but Jesus was given up for us all. And if all here means the unelect who perish, then that's no guarantee that God will also give us graciously all things. Because if Goliath is in the group of us all that God gave up Jesus for, Goliath is not getting right now graciously all things from God. Instead, he's getting just wrath from God. So you see, in order for the promise to work, God gave us the most unthinkable thing he could ever give us, which is his son. Which is his son. Making sure my microphone's on here. God gave us the most unthinkable thing he could ever give us by giving up his son for us. Therefore, everything else is a cakewalk. Everything else is easy, um, unimaginably easy for God to give us. If he gave the, he gave the second person of the Trinity to death for us, you think he's not going to meet your needs to pay your medical bill this month? or whatever it might be. I mean, he may not meet it the way you want or hope or in the timing you want, but God's going to care for your needs. And even through death, he will be faithful to bring you to glory. He's going to give you all things. But the reason why you know he's going to be faithful to give you everything you need is because he gave Jesus up specifically for us all. And if us all means everyone without distinction, this promise doesn't work because now God gave Jesus up for the unelect, but the unelect are not going to receive all things. So how does the logic work? No, the logic only works if the us all is the elect, and God gave Jesus up only and effectively to save the elect. And because God gave Jesus to save the elect effectively, we know he's going to give us all things that we need uh, through Christ. Thank you so much for, for listening. I know it was a stream of thought. I hope it was helpful.